This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. party people another episode of stark reality this time with my friend darcy tronzo who i met on a dance floor in new york some years ago top peoples and uh she hails from outside pittsburgh and she's around there these days coal miner's daughter artist producer uh spent some time in new york and also in the bay in minneapolis has worked in the film biz DJs, uh, you know, paints, does all kinds of things. We ended up talking about soul music, Appalachia politics, unions, the film biz, even uh, tear tear gas factories in Pennsylvania, etc. Darcy is top peoples and uh, really glad to hear her thoughts on a number of issues and she gives us a nice soulful playlist, of course. So Darcy Trunzo here on Stark Reality. Enjoy. different head spaces and stuff like that for sure it's really bananas actually <laughs> i mean um yeah i mean i think that's like the whole thing everybody there's like a whole conversation and obviously i'm here and you're there which is a whole other part of the discussion like new york versus the repines of western pennsylvania but like <laughs> um the sort of re-emergence in people's preparation for it and people's capacity to handle it and nobody's able to handle it right now everybody's still like nuts yeah no i mean it's it's <laughs> sort of an unprecedented thing to go through i mean it's mm -hmm. funny to think about it because i know we recorded something uh long before mm -hmm. any of this stuff which yeah. is kind of why we're, re we're recording it now because it's uh it's just funny how fast things get dated i think we were Elizabeth Warren was like in the race and we were talking about that and all it just seems like about 30 years ago at this point it you does know? seem like 30 years ago but also yesterday which is fucking crazy too yeah was that also like right around the time of Kavanaugh there was all sorts of shit happening yeah I mean that's the thing about uh life is it's almost there's so many like random you know horrible things happening all the time that it's it's hard to kind of keep up and it's just funny it's like oh yeah that shit that was awful too <laughs> right, right. like right like you said it's like an unprecedented time well and and also again i think the the constant media cycle doesn't help it any like it's um i think it's always been like this and this is one of the things that i've kind of learned as well like and, and we can get into that conversation. You know, one of the things that I kind of got into since I've been back is 
um, a lot of the art that I've dug into, because I really had no choice during the first part of lockdown in order to kind of like save myself was to just dig into art. And I got into the idea, um, and, and I've always been involved with this, is considering myself a social practice artist and using art as a method of inquiry. So you start using that tool uh, and the things that you make and the ideas that you uncover about like multiple truths and different kinds of storytelling. And initially what I had started to do was just flat-footedly documenting people during the pandemic here and sort of un, un, like underrepresented communities in this way that was sort of WPA style, just like going to people where they were in rural areas, like specifically queer folks, black folks, immigrants, those folks. And then very quickly, you know, because there was like the Tiger King <laughs> pandemic. And then there was like post George Floyd and Breonna Taylor that like broke everything the fuck open, you know? So that everything kind of changed after that to me sort of like mining a whole new investigation of what it's like to be in a coal town in rural Western PA during this time, you know, having fled from New York, having been on a film and gone through that whole process too. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, your background, I know we were talking about this before, but you, uh, your background is uh, you've been working in the film biz for a long time. <laughs> A decade, a little over a decade. I had some experience previous to that in my 20s in television uh, here in Pittsburgh, PA. Um, sort of after I left home in 94, like left my family home, which was about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Um, it was AmeriCorps that got me into television. And I worked at a cable access station for a number of years teaching kids uh, media literacy. And I had a really, really good boss at that time who just sort of let me kind of explore how I wanted. And I did a lot of partnering with places like the Warhol Museum and the Mattress Factory and other arts organizations and explored public art and what that meant. And also got really, really into things like Paper Tiger Television, which was like a free speech television sort of pillar. And, you know, Democracy Now!, obviously, but also like other weirdo artists who worked in those formats. Um, but then, you know, fast forward many number of years later and I, I had moved to Pittsburgh on a film production and then just kind of stayed, you know, for a decade. And this is like my decade year, actually. Um, so that is also weird for me to like the year that people say, like, are you a New Yorker or are you not a New Yorker? You know? oh, I mean, all those things are kind of silly to be. Sure, honest. They're arbitrary and silly, but I, it is sort of like a thing, you know. Well, I mean, it's also, it does the city work for you. I mean, if it's like you're just grinding and grinding and the rent is not working for you, then it's not necessarily a failure on your part or you're not a New Yorker, all this stuff. I mean, oh. it's an expensive town, you know? It's I've, like it's, never, you know? I've never sort of seen it as that. Like, I've always thought it was because I've always seen myself as like, some people see themselves as bi-coastal. I see myself as an other sort of, country mouse, city mouse, right? Like I'm always going to have one foot in urban spaces and one foot in rural spaces because I fundamentally believe that I have a commitment as some sort of interlocutor for like what happens in Appalachia because I came from here. And I think that a lot of people really don't understand what it's like. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, all those places in the media, just kind of like the South too, they sort of get brushed as sort of, 
you know, the kind of backwoods, every single person who lives there is a Trump supporter or X, Y, Z. And it's sort of, uh, I mean, I think, you know, I was talking with uh, Kevin Nutt, who does the Sinners Crossroads program, who lives in Alabama, yeah. kind of about this. It sort of flattens the whole concept of what the place these places are about. I'm sure there's all kinds of people living there. And if anything, like, yeah, the people that aren't thinking that way, you know, maybe we'd like to hear like, yeah, what is it? What is life like for them? That is to me really interesting, you know? Yeah. And it just took me on this journey of like, you know, I have my own like personal mining and like the art project that I endeavored on initially um, was just sort of like, every day getting involved in a practice, taking photos, taking taking my camera out to see people where they were. And interestingly for me, like because I was in locations in film, I mean, I had worked in all sorts of departments and that's um, sense of place was always crucial to me because in, in fact, when I went back to school, what I studied was art and urban studies and public policy. And I was very into community and neighborhood development but also the aesthetics of those places and the cinematic quality of those places because I worked in film for so long. But the tool of the camera for me, because I wasn't necessarily a director or a DP, was a, it was a very flat-footed tool of like looking at these spaces in a wide open, non-judgmental way to say, we need to take a photograph of this space. And it wasn't even like real estate photography. It was like imbuing these places with their own sense of character, like the building so that you could present it as a world, but then going out and, and actually starting to take photographs of people was a totally different experience for me. And like training my lens on that. And literally the lens that I was using was, um, it was a uh, 75 to 300 because it, that allowed me at the time, we were still like heavily into social distancing. So it allowed me. Oh, that's really wild. You almost got like one of those like bird lenses to get. It was like... a bird lens actually is what it was. That's hilarious. Um, because I was on a job in the Adirondacks a number of years ago and someone advertised it and it was brand new in the box and it was real cheap. So I bought it. And it became like a tool that I really liked and it became an effective tool that in time actually gave me access to points of view and also gave me um, plausible deniability in certain aspects because, you know, initially I was just taking photographs of people where they were. Well, then, you know, what shit we hit April, May, protests started to happen, George Floyd happened. And that stuff impacted here too. There were massive protests here. And because we sit in a media hole here, because even in the city of Pittsburgh, you know, they had just filed, fired Rob Rogers, who was a political cartoonist who had been with them for a long, long time um, for being too critical of the Trump administration. And a lot of the the reporters that I had been friendly with, like they, all of the reporters were getting a raw deal. I had known them for many years ago when I was working in the city and doing political work. So to get them out to Indiana, PA, which is, you know, Jimmy Stewart's hometown, which was interesting as well. And I was sort of even digging into that history um, to get them out here to understand what was happening. I mean, there were credible there is still a lot of white supremacist activity and training here that happens all the time. And, you know, photographing some of those protests, open carry protests, you know, with 
people with ARs with shitty trigger discipline, you know, and like women with guns hanging out of their yoga pants that are like, yeah, I mean, no it's definitely pants. legit scary for sure. Yeah. 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 But there are also other people out here and I'm not even talking about like the university class progressives, you know, at one point they were sort of a group that, had sort of evolved to say that, you know, they had gone for Obama and helped to push Obama into office out here. And there was some promise that there was going to be a movement of progressives. But, you know, I mean, you and I talk about how unserious a lot of the progressives, the the self-proclaimed progressives became in actually making any sort of legislative change, even at the very local level. And they just you know, got scared up their own assholes and did nothing. And I, they, these are people who are yard signing candlelight vigil progressives. You know, um, one of the protests that happened here was organized by a teenager who happened to be the daughter of a close friend of mine. And, you know, there were a lot of local elected officials. It was a Black Lives Matter protest. And there were like a thousand people there. And a lot of the local elected officials who proclaim themselves to be progressive got on the backs of flatbed trucks, said they believed in police reform, said they believed that Black Lives Matter, all of the things, not one piece of legislation, you know. It um, was very typical, you know. I mean, that's sort of my frustration, and I think a lot of other people's frustration with, like, the squad. and, and mm -hmm. It just becomes lip service. It's like you know, the people tweeting, it's like, okay, you're actually in the position, mm -hmm. you know, you're elected to, I mean, I'm sure it's an uphill battle and I'm sure, but at least like throw stuff out there. That was, I think, some of the whole idea of force the vote that even if it fails, then you see everyone who basically thumbed down universal health care so you can hold it to them, you know, just like, I mean, like, I'm not a political strategist, but I, I feel, right. it feels like it's pretty basic strategy. And then, when you see like that people are fighting it so much like it's not going to work it's terrible and then they don't really do anything or offer anything like is even no, medicare I... for all like even remotely on the table like it's not even being talked about and it's like we're still in a pandemic with what 700,000 people dead it's absolutely fucking ridiculous you know well and again like so when i was so and that goes back to like when I was in the decision-making process to whether to stay where I was, because I really liked the home that I was living in. I had really great roommates. Um, but the density of where I was, the previous year I had had pneumonia and was hospitalized with it. And I knew that my chances of getting that first wave were significant because of the density of the city, unless we completely locked down. And even still, if anything would have happened... I would have ended up in one of the city hospitals and they were flooded. And I felt like because my family was closest, the the right thing to do was to sort of relieve the pressure in that household because there were already a ton of people living in that house, despite the fact that we all got along. And um, but I also knew it would take longer for the pandemic to hit here. But I also knew people would misbehave and it would be mishandled politically like I fully knew that. And when I came back, I actually, the film that I was on leading up to the pandemic was a Sundance project that actually put us in a lot of places of like high density. We would have been in air, airport hotels. 
we would have been in gyms, we would have been in convention centers, um, because it was at about it was about um, female bodybuilders. And as we were leading up, you know, you're hearing this stuff on the radio, and I'm following all of these things. I'm going out to scare, scout all of these airport hotels. Yeah, that's right. You were a location scout among other hats. You know? Yeah. So you were I, scouting all the areas out for this shoot. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so I was hearing, you know, shit, there, one of the locations was a hotel near the um, JFK and the other one was near LaGuardia. And they're like, no, we've got pilots quarantined upstairs because they just came in from a country where there's like COVID and there's coronavirus from everywhere. And so the whole top floor is off limits. We can't allow you to come in. Or, you know, at the time they were slowly starting to um, narrow, you know, the number of people that you could have in a, in a given place to gather. And I was listening and listening and listening. And I, I was, you know, telling the producers, at what point are you going to tell the director, we're not making this film? Like, it's just not, it's not going to happen. And, but, but also learning about, you know, hospital locations and some of these other places of like not allowing people in and out and the emergency management plans that we knew. I mean, having worked on a lot of crime procedurals, I worked in hospitals a lot and we always had to have plans for like, how to not get the crew MRSA or vice versa, bring someone into a place in the hospital where they're going to compromise the immune systems of other people. So there's always some sort of emergency management plan theoretically in place. And so when I came back um, to Pennsylvania, I had a friend who was a local elected official and I said, we got to talk. What are you doing? Because once this shit hits here, it's going to decimate this place. And so you need to have the shit in place so it doesn't become politicized. We met, we discussed, and they shit the bed. They, they had no plan in place. They refused to inform the public about what happened. They, they misspent all of the federal dollars that went into them potentially being able to actually inform and educate the public about what was happening. So it allowed, you know, the toilet seat Googlers to like, right, right. You know, to really sort of spread a lot more misinformation a lot more quickly about what was going to happen. So consequently, like the wave of misinformation overtook the community. Um, in terms of what, like uh, apprehension to getting vaccinated or? Oh, this was before the vaccination. I mean, this so is just like, like you don't really need to protect yourself. The masks are like overkill being, kind of thing. Fights about businesses being open. And the interesting thing that happened here was we at the time, Rachel Levine, Dr. Rachel Levine was our... Um, physician general here in, in Pennsylvania. And she, I believe that's the correct title. And she was someone who was very smart. I had interacted with her before um, on some calls about tracking um, queer youth in rural Pennsylvania and their access to healthcare. And this was a number of years ago. And she was really committed to ideas of like making sure that Pennsylvania's rural folk were taken care of. And what was happening here is there was a political avenue taken by a lot of the, the extremists and who were in elected offices to say, we don't believe that 
if you are trans, you believe in science because being trans is against science. So therefore, if you are trans, you don't believe in science. Therefore, anything that comes out of your mouth regarding science is a fallacy. And so they went down this road of using bigoted rhetoric against trans folk as a reason to disbelieve coronavirus. Wow, that's uh, wild. Why, was, is she is she trans? Yes. Oh, yes. the physician she, general is trans. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, okay, and wow. she's not the Biden administration. But there was so wow. So, that's pretty wild. I did not hear that. Hear about that at all. That's really crazy. The logic and and the thing is, it wasn't. It wasn't as overtly put out that way, but there was a lot of reading between the lines language of, well, how can we believe this person who, you know, doesn't believe in, in biology, you know, if they themselves are playing dress up and, you know, it's, it's against biology. It was repugnant, repugnant. And you know, the sort of crossover of building of the Venn diagrams of the different kinds of folks who are converting spaces. You have, you know, your general just terrible Republicans. And then you have you have your survivalist neo-Nazis that are out here with training camps. You have your QAnon nuts. And then you have, you know, your Proud Boys and your Oath Keepers. And you know, there's not a ton of agreement all the time among them, but when they converge, it's a nightmare. And, you know, they eventually, like there was the stuff that was happening in the spring of 2020, but then as we were moving closer and closer to the election, they were becoming much more activated and nobody wanted to stand up to them. And law enforcement here turned a blind eye. We know for a fact because of history in this community and work that I've done in with community organizing that they were never, you know, you would have organizations like Patriot Front dropping literature and the local law enforcement would never contact the FBI or would never report those things to other agencies that were looking into white supremacist activity. And so there were others of us who were heat mapping this stuff and we've been heat mapping it now for about six or seven years. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you guys go about that when you just hear about incidents or like people reporting, I guess, in different towns, like where do they drop off these flyers? Like just in stores or just on the street? They I mean, post them. Yes. And yes. I mean, you get you Patriot front specifically is really known for, Sticker campaigns, um, mostly in grocery store parking lots, but also like around municipal buildings. They're really good around courthouses for putting stickers on lampposts. Uh, they were putting things on college campuses. Also Keystone United, who have been very, very active um, in this county and adjacent counties. We're also dropping literature. Another method was be- because they can't use mailboxes because it's a federal crime. And they're smart enough to not do that. Um, like filling bags with rice and like throwing it out car windows into onto rural lawns with information and literature. And these are these are groups that have, you know, Aryan youth picnics and stuff like that. So it's it, it's like it's like Bavaria in the 30s, essentially, is what it is. Um, you know, and you have and you have 
here because it is a university town within a rural coal town. Now this was a full on labor class coal town that has had labor uprisings. In fact, this is the hundred year anniversary of mother Jones coming here. Um, so there, there has been that history of pushback and, and what people outside of Appalachia in general don't realize is this is where the seeds of re resistance were sown, you know, and sort of the roadmap for those things outside of centers of New York City where those labor fights were happening, the immigrant fights and the, the race, the race sort of fights that were both um, egged on by labor or, you know, Harper's Ferry is not that far from here. You know, the Whiskey Rebellion didn't happen that far from here. So you have these like insurrectionist instincts on both sides that have always been a part of, of Appalachia, specifically, specifically the central part of um, Appalachia because the Mason-Dixon line made it so. You know, there was this fight between Pennsylvania and the West Virginia border, which right, was not right. far. Um, so a lot of what I was doing, even among, you know, watching, watching, um, the sort of current events come down was digging back into this history, looking at my own family's history, my father's history with regard to the, to the labor, um, issue, you know, watching him go get tested for black lung, watching all of my grandparents have black lung, um, you know, and looking at the fact that my dad almost didn't recover his full pension. And I think we did talk about that the last time was the big fight, um, you know, that Joe Manchin being a pain in the ass and Pat Toomey being a pain in the ass about those things and, you know, not yielding to his constituents concerns. Um, so there's that and there's all of these layers. And then coming to the realization while all of these protests are happening, that this town my hometown was one of the first towns in the in the united states to start manufacturing less lethal munitions and engage um in the manufacture of tear gas and rubber bullets yeah that's funny i know that i didn't realize it was near there because I, I i think it i remember seeing uh you know maybe during uh mike brown or uh some of those protests and like you know people pointing out it's the same kind of canisters that were made somewhere in Pennsylvania that also get shipped to Gaza. So it's kind of crazy yep. how um, all this stuff kind of goes around and it, and it sort of comes from random places, you know, you know, even like in the so middle of England, there's like a Bay systems or these different weapon systems. They're sometimes in these really sleepy towns and well, they're okay. sort of tucked away. And obviously mm -hmm. the people that have jobs at these places, then they're not complaining because they have a decent job within that area. Right. And it sort and, of gets swept under the like, you're like, oh, it's just uh, where does this come from? Who knows? You know, well, the interesting thing is, even within my personal family, as I started mining all of that and started looking from, you know, for my own, the own, the, my own personal storytelling and how my, the complicity, right? Like looking at white complicity and looking at how women specifically are made to be complicit in these processes of militarism. And um, my grandmother and my great grandmother both worked at the very first tear gas plant in this county, which initially dated to like the 19 teens, 1920s. That's crazy. 
And yeah, and I remember them talking about it, that it was sort of like this Rosie the Riveter shit that she manufactured grenades and all of that kind of stuff. And eventually was like manufacturing airplane glass, but the tear gas was the component and looking into how that was built. And I ended up reading this book by this woman named Anna Feigenbaum, who's in the UK now. She's a researcher and she's like gotten off the tear gas wagon. But that book was a primer you know, of like the history where I was able to go to local history centers and corroborate a lot of the history and dig deeper. So I was doing paintings that were based on that. And, you know, I found, I was very fortunate that initially I found a local community theater in the town that had allowed me to use their workshop space um, as an art studio, because it was closed, they couldn't use it anyway. And by keeping someone in there often, it kept it from being, you know, anyone from breaking in or whatever. Yeah, all Just, that stuff you, of like, yeah. oh, it's abandoned, what's in there kind of thing. Yeah. And so I was working out of there and actually like working with young students about storytelling because they were out of school, but they were looking for something to do. And at the time, um, I took one of my first... Um, you know, infusions of uh, um, stimulus and was, you know, paying kids some cash a couple hours a week to come in and act as assistants and sort of be creative collaborators on something that I had wanted to do around this history of tear gas. Well, eventually, um, one of the board members um, took umbrage with some of the material that I was doing because he didn't understand it and it wasn't overtly theatrical. It wasn't a play. And he was seeing these paintings and um, there was an afternoon that he texted me and he was like, I took your paintings down and I want your key back. And he was a board member um, who had made a significant contribution to the place. And I came and like, he had torn my paintings down off the wall that I was still working on. And like his fingerprints were all over it. And like, you know, yeah. And it was, it was really like, difficult for me because actually in the weeks previous when the the George Floyd riots were ha- or when the George Floyd protests were happening um because I was taking photographs at those um events both the thin blue line folks and like you know the the pro cop folks and the others you know taking photographs of all of it um I was doxxed and there were public threats made against me for taking photographs and, you know, they made a meme out of me and there was a lot of like threats of sexual violence. People have like, you know, followed me in cars while I've been on a bicycle. They were threatening my, my, my friend's daughter who organized the, the March actually was threatened with lynching. And my friend found out that her daughter was threatened with lynching because Homeland security contacted her. Not, and it was, it was credible enough that it was, it was an issue. Um, and so a lot of us were experiencing like that daily threat of like something crazy really could happen here. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, and, and sometimes on these social media companies, it's, it's funny how, how fast they are to kind of suspend leftists for even being critical of America or white people. But then you'll get credible death threats and then those people will still be on Twitter, you know, or whatever. It's, it's kind well, of insane. Was, you know, it's like, it, it can be very lax. It's like, you're sending people death threats. Like maybe you shouldn't be on these platforms, a child. you know, a child. a child, ridiculous. 
And so, you know, and I had photographs of those, of those afternoons and in a lot of my paintings ended up, the arc of those paintings ended up being from some of those photographs because sending them to local elected officials wasn't enough. It was like, they were photojournalistic enough that they didn't perceive them as actually being from our town for some reason. It was like this real weird cognitive dissonance that they had that these photographs didn't represent what was actually going on. And I, that was this weird collective gaslighting that I was experiencing here from the progressives where they weren't taking it seriously enough. So I ended up, the paintings that I was doing ended up being like six foot by six foot paintings of like screen grabs and photographs from the catalog of like the tear, what, tear gas plant or um, some of the photographs of the protests and the Proud Boys and blowing them up. And I did an exhibition in Jan my first exhibition in January of those photographs. And people were like, wait, this happened here? I'm like, where were you? Where were all of you people? Yeah. You know, like you put up the artist statement and you put the caption under each of these things. And they're like, where did this happen? Like right out here, like right out in front of where, where, where this is hanging right now. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. And it, it, the, the inherent fear that people feel about that. And, and when you try and argue, and I think a lot of the struggle that I was having for a long time was them not really seeing the similarities between what was happening in 1933 and what was happening here, you know, with regard to how the law enforcement was sort of empowered to do what they were doing and how, you know, um, they were basically going into sort of university centers in smaller towns and pushing back on anyone who was queer, black, or immigrant and saying that we are the only ones that can do this kind of thing. And that's exactly what was happening. And, and I was just, it, it was a very heavy, heavy, heavy time because, because of that and seeing what my friends were going through. Like, um, I have a lot of friends who could not legitimately be out in public because it was so bad. And so a lot of what was happening was you were seeing a lot of these communities that couldn't function publicly were doing a lot more of the research to go back to that conversation about how were you heat mapping and tracking some of these things. A lot of it was being done by local queers and immigrants because they, they, they could sit behind their computer and help track what was happening because they couldn't necessarily go to public meetings or they couldn't necessarily go to protests in a place like this. This is a way that they could participate. And they took it very seriously. And, um, you know, it's still something that we've been engaged in, but, you know, that was one of the bigger components of the last, of the last um, two years. I mean, it was sort of the sort of, you know, nearing the climax of what was the zenith of what was happening over the last seven or so years that we were talking about. We're like, this is coming guys. And here it is. Yeah. You know, and you know, we're still confronting now, you know, this is, this community is experiencing what a 40% vax rate, you know, all of the hospital beds are full there. There's obviously, you know, we we rural I mean, do you see it, like a, a a good segment of the population just 
is not going to plan on getting vaccinated at all, basically, like kind of buying into that whole thing. I think it's a, I think it's, it's, I don't, it's not as simple as that. I think one of the big issues here is you have an elderly population who can't physically get to fucking places. Yeah. They probably, they're not really making it that easy. Like they're not no. going door to door to people to make it easy. Exactly. So this yeah, that, exactly that's an issue. Problem. Yeah, this no, is that's exactly an issue. The problem. And you know, I had actually offered along with someone else, there's this guy here. He's the coolest guy. His name is Ron Riley. And he used to be a hospital like bean counter. Um, he was a uh, pretty high up in a, in a regional hospital and he has taken it upon himself to parse out the numbers for this County and a neighboring County of what's happening giving the daily COVID count because nobody in local, um, elected politics was reporting that they had spent $50,000 of COVID money on a website that never got updated. And the COVID task force that they put together wasn't allowing community input. So he just took it on, on himself to do this and the local newspaper wouldn't report the numbers that he was aggregating, which were accurate and coming from the CDC, but also pulling them from the hospital. And so we started going in, like showing up and disrupting public meetings with this shit because it was serious. And one of the things that we had offered and we had put together a plan, like a, like a communication plan for how to help them. We had offered help initially and said, Listen, if you give us an ice cream truck and a and some Xeroxes, we can help get information out. Like this is because when we initially met with them, they said we really don't know how to get information out beyond the radio and we're we're putting this stuff on the website. I said we're in a county that only 5%, I believe of the county, maybe a little bit more. Maybe I'm exaggerating that. Um but has broadband internet. So they're, they don't even have access to the internet. Right. And then you have, you know, aging and all sorts of disabilities that prevent people from accessing the internet and other kinds of information. So the only way to do that kind of stuff, exactly like you said, was door to door or like they did in Queens, they would have people with bullhorns going around in Queens and saying like, stay in your fucking house or here's information about, you know, COVID, wear a mask, here's hand sanitizer, providing the PPE to people to say, like, here's some resources, here's what you can yeah, do. I mean, it's really like just amazing just how little the government has, has done. And even and when you have to fight them, it's like, OK, we'll give you some money and then also give billionaires trillions, literally. So it's like it's kind of it is kind of a crazy thing. And just the concept that, you know, in the end, they don't really care if people die, especially poor people. They really don't care because look how many people have died. It's, well, it's really and, and many people. I think it's just, you know, not without irony that some of the people like some of the people, you know, that were saying, you know, ridiculous stuff like, well, some people are just going to have to die for the economy and they're not yeah, with us shit. now. Some of yeah. the people have said that shit. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like it's really crazy. You know, well, and I think in some cases it's it's one of those things where what what the hell is the phrase? It's like, you know, why suspect like, you know, um, you know, ill intent when in, mere incompetence will do, you know, in some incidents, it's just raw fucking incompetence. And, you know, we have in Indiana County, a system of county commissioners where there's two there's two Republican county commissioners who 
have one is purely lazy. The other one um, has a, a battle against narcissistic injury that rivals our, our former presidents. So that if you show her her own incompetence, she like shrieks and goes into a hole and does anything she can to destroy anyone who suggests otherwise. And then you have a Democrat who is smart, but she is so bullied that she can't, she can't find it within herself to stand up and say this shit because people are concerned that she's not going to get reelected. And my point was, if you're not going to get reelected, go out pistols fucking blazing. Like do the right thing. Like yeah, at the end I of mean, the day, I think it's a general thing where I don't think yeah. you know, but that to me is the Democratic Party. They're paid to sort of not have a spine, and it's sort of like just a grand theater where you have, yeah. you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy, and Lucy keeps pulling the football away, and Charlie Brown's like, "Wow, I thought she was really going to hold it this time," you yeah. know. So it's and- it's it starts to you know, and you start to see why a lot of like activists get kind of jaded on electrical electoral politics it's like kind of going back to direct action like not that you shouldn't try to get better people than complete outright fascists but right yeah it's it's hard to get excited when like basically everybody's an imperialist even bernie even aoc all these people so you're not really gonna i don't know the system is very very entrenched like i don't feel you can get into it on a a national level if you are an imperial unless you're you, you know buying into it i mean even that the the mayor that's running for Buffalo, I think uh, India Walton, you know, and she's yeah. the first socialist mayor with a shot of getting in in how many years? And then they were trying to, you know, right. do all this kind of fuckery. Like even though the mayor lost the Democratic ticket, then he was trying to get on as an independent last minute, and just like anything that. And then they were like, well, maybe we'll just eliminate the position of mayor in Buffalo. Like they're just trying to like they're scared. Right. They're scared. So like I think anytime you even have somebody who's remotely on the working class side, you know, well, it's it's just like, like they're trying. Think- they're they're gonna do everything. Like Bernie is an imperialist, and they still won't let him run shit so it's like you know it's not but they're going bonkers over fucking john fetterman who you know because he looks like a goddamn pro wrestler or like some sort of action figure everybody and says like in theory all the right things they won't look back and see that this is a dude that chased a black man in his district with a shotgun vigilante style like this is like anathema to any sort of black lives matter rhetoric or any sort of like pro equity rhetoric that any of these folks have. And he was the mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania. And the work that he did was on the backs of black community members who had been doing that work for a long time. But because he was, he was an Ivy league dude who had dad's money, you know, he served in the same AmeriCorps, um, core that I did shortly after I was there and he got radically different treatment than the rest of us who served in those communities who served for like $400 a month you know that's what we were living off of at the time but because he didn't need the money he was able to get his projects funded through his own family so everybody you know buttered his balls all the time And his wife's awesome, but that doesn't make him awesome. And it doesn't mean that he should be, he's the kind of bloviator. He's the other side of the same coin as Trump. 
he's the kind of bloviator that his own narcissistic injury will cause him to fight fights, but at the same time, not actually be interested in the final outcome of what's happening when, with the communities that he impacts. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns with him. Should he, could he be a consultant? Sure. Because then it doesn't matter. He just gets to talk about shit, you know, or should he be a talking head? Great. But he shouldn't be in a place where he actually has to be in a pit and organize with people. I don't think that that's the case. I mean, that's just my own take on it. But, but again, like you said, watching folks, like they'll get behind that. And I think the backlash of it is not going to be good. Um, we'll see what happens with the race. There's a, there's a seriously like Kennedy looking motherfucker moderate who, um, you know, neo-lib kind of guy who's running for that same democratic seat because they're pushing for Toomey's seat is what they're doing. And everybody's really hungry because Pat Toomey was such a rancorous piece of shit, you know? So, yeah, I mean, what, this what, is, what seat is this again? Uh, this is a uh, Pennsylvania Senate seat um, that Pat Toomey had held for a long time. And Pat Toomey was just garbage. And he, he was a Koch brother. He, Betsy DeVos and Koch brothers were two of his bigger connections. And he was very, very famous for like hiding from his constituents, like very, very overtly hiding from them and just being arrogant, just really arrogant. And, you know, openly denying, you know, things that were happening within his office. And then when people would come and question why he voted in particular ways, he would hide from them. He wasn't able to be, you know, he was, wasn't easily accessed. People started like occupying his office in Philly and Pittsburgh. Um, and he was never there, but we actually were able to gain access to it here in Johnstown a number of years ago. Um, you know, they weren't locking the office because they didn't think that anyone was going to organize here. And, and we were able to get a lot of things through, not that he gave a shit, but we were able to get some press on that and actually get letters through and some provable traction in that arena, um, particularly dealing with coal miners and healthcare and things like that. Uh, immigrant, immigrant rights, you know, because that's when, you know, the, the travel bans were happening and the, you know, immigration bans were happening, you know, right after the election, the 2016 election. So it's been a long battle here. And then on top of that, what are some of like the uh, immigrant groups in, in that part of the country? There is, well, I mean, it depends because in the city of Pittsburgh proper, you know, we've had everyone. Yeah, you have a mismatch of people. Of yeah, you've had everyone from Bantus to an uptick in Latinos, Latinx population, which also here rurally, we've had a massive uptick in Latinx pop population, also Arab population, um, and, and, and sort of multi-ethnic Arab populations. And the thing is, it's, it, we have an um, Islamic center here. And the last I checked, and I don't know if this number is still accurate, I think that the congregation size for a community that fluctuates between like 25,000, I, I got I to gotta be cautious about my numbers here, but it does fluctuate by like around 10,000 every year because of the university. But um, the congregation size, the last time I checked was over 1,500. It was like, was like fluctuating between like 15 and 1,800 for the Islamic center. And 
the thing with that is it would be like saying, you know, going to a community and saying, oh, there's the church. You know, you have all of these different folks. You have Catholics, you have Lutherans, you have Universalists, you have Methodists, you have freaking, you know, fundamentalists, you know, Pentecostal Baptists. Those folks all expected to congregate in the same space and worship. You know, like, how does that, how did that go? And, and I think, you know, I, I think it's gone reasonably well in a community like this, given the diversity of the different kinds of Islam that different, that people practice. But there is this notion in a lot of places in the United States that Islam's Islam like anything else. Um, and so, again, there's, there's an increasing Arab population here, lots of hijabi women, some affiliated with the university and some not. Um, we have also had a long-standing Southeast Asian population that were a, con- a consequence of Nixon-era immigration laws, um, you know, Indians, Pakistanis, um, but also other, you know, lots of Koreans that came in because of the hospital system here. Because after coal shut down, and as we knew the arc of coal was going to shift, hospitals became a thing, right? And there's, there's, this is in Rust Belt communities, that's been an arc. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what is the transition out of coal for some of these uh, communities in terms of like what they're trying to do economically? Fuck all. And or full scale gentrification and and relying on things that could be good, but that they're instead of doing the long, slow work of understanding the economics of the community they see something and they're like that over there and they run towards it. Like cultural tourism, for example, is a big one. Um, so you find a lot throughout Appalachia, through West Virginia, Kentucky, into, into Pennsylvania and Maryland, these, these spaces, like anywhere else, you see the growth of breweries, you know, um, because then it becomes um, something that's made locally. A local thing. Exactly. Right. So it, it is it beneficial Sure. And people do travel for that sort of thing. But is it serving the greater needs of the community? Because how is that money reaching out into the further depths? And again, the isolation in these communities is legitimate. Like, like, like I said, the road passage is an issue. Like there's, there's still like deep hollers here. It's not as bad. The holler sort of situation and the, the valley situation isn't as grave in this particular community, we're a little more rolling than if you go to the south of us or to the north of us, but it still provides passage issues and it still provides, it still provides transportation issues. And, um, but they're just not maintaining the roads properly or, uh, that's part of it. Or there's in some instances, there's just roads not built, you know, dirt roads have been, have been de rigueur for de rigueur for years. And, you know, it worked. It was a f- agrarian community where if it wasn't farmland, it was coal. And so you have gas well roads or like, you know, they look like turkey paths. And um, so that is an issue. And the, there's no public transportation to be had out yeah, here. I was going to say that's probably, again, in those kind of communities, that's tricky. Mm-hmm. You know? Especially during a pandemic, like you don't want to be taking, you know, I mean, I can't imagine in New York City, you know, the subway system, I'm hearing people talk about the subways in New York, you know, and I've been zooming with friends, mutual friends that we have. 
um, you know, and all sorts, you know, people who had to go to work, they had no choice. Um, and here there is a bus system, but I remember sitting down and talking to an elected official and saying like one of the adjacent, the, the nearest urban center or what would have been a metro center is Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It's 30 miles away roughly. And it's up in, it's mountainous. And um, that is where the nearest Amtrak station is. And there was a really significant amount of money put into an upgrade of that Amtrak station. And that's where I come to and from New York um, because of ADA. Um, there was a loss in ADA lawsuit, but Amtrak wanted to upgrade that station anyway, but this ended up giving, you know, they were forced into it, but there's no means for anyone from this community to get to that Amtrak station. The, I, the people are isolated in this community. There's no way in or out. There is a bus loop that goes into some of the communities and I've taken it and it, it works to an extent like any bus system but it only comes a few times a day and it only goes walking to and from like that, what they call in transit planning, last mile, first mile, last mile, there's no existing support in that first, first mile, last mile jump. So people are having to walk on roads where there are no sidewalks or where there's no like park and ride or something like that. So they can't get to like the unemployment office or they can't get to job services or healthcare services as a consequence of those things. Um, and additional infrastructural problems like mail not being able to get to these places and mail getting lost is a real challenge here, like a legitimate challenge. And again, it's not being reported on effectively because we don't have the media market here and the, the radio market is right wing pandering, you know? Yeah. You just have limited options and you basically are generally ignored. And I mean, it's crazy that that guy was a DeJoy who was, you know, the awful Trump appointee. But then again, kind of like how these parties work in tandem. Why does he still have a job? Biden right. hasn't fired him. Like, what? what is the point of having that guy there? Right. Again, it's sort of and and it's not really talked about. It's sort of just this sort of continuation, you know, right. or, or Biden deporting a bunch of Haitians. So right. it's like all of a sudden, oh. or we still have kids and now, now we're not talking about the kids in cages on the border because now there's right. a Democrat in office and so now the liberals don't have to talk about it. So yeah, it's right. kind of crazy. How, but I mean, you know, again, there's just lots and lots of communities in this country that, uh, that are forgotten about. I mean, I could see you being from there and spending time in New York, but of course you're going to have to have a foot back because this is where you're from and you want to keep tabs on this, you know? Well, and yeah, my, my family's still here. My family, they're, they're at that age, you know, where I was from a big family, but, and only, so I don't have like siblings who are actively keeping an eye out for my family. And it was one of those things where if something would have happened to my parents and I would have been stuck in New York during the biggest part of lockdown, there would have been no way I would have been able to address any, anything that was happening. And that was the other part of the choice to come back. And even looking back into my own family history and as it relates to a lot of the things, a, a lot of the history of, you know, even in mining, you know, the artwork that I'm making with regard to secret keeping. And, and again, it goes back into the complicity of like, no one wants to talk about these things. And when you shed a light on them, 
it it's problematic. But you know, I'm one of those people that believes that when you put light on it, it becomes antiseptic. And and so by like continuing to research and looking at these things and sort of these convergent and divergent histories, like here's my personal history and here's my personal experience with these things via labor history and via women's history and via, you know, working class who, you know, we, if we struck and, and this is the interest my dad and I were just having conversations about the whole IATSE conversation and, and, um, Teamsters. And I remember my grandfather, like one of my first really rich political memories was my grand. He was one of those dudes who like smoked cigarettes, like way back in, in the, into his knuckle and would wrap the chase. And I remember him watching um, when Reagan broke the air traffic controllers. And he was like, there needs to be a general strike and this entire country needs to sit the hell down right now. Because if we do not, we will never, ever be able to earn a living for our families ever again. And it's just going to get worse and worse. And he was right. He was absolutely right. Um, and I remember hearing him say that, I mean, son of a bitch, I'm very fortunate. And I'm like one of those rural people, one of those rural Western PA or Appalachians that never, like, I don't have to have the, like, I didn't have to have like the Trump argument with them or the QAnon argument. Thank God. Like, (laughs) no shit. No, I mean, like, I know that I'm very, like, that's a privilege in and of itself to be from here and have a family that isn't poisoned by that. I mean, they have their own, like, you know, there's still sort of uh, Labor Party Democrats who are verging more and more left as they age, but they still don't have the language for it necessarily. Right. But when my but when my dad talks about labor issues, he's very on point. You know, my dad he was not a fan of Richard Trumka, and my dad really felt very strongly that people would have had shit on Trumka had he lived. Um, you know, he wasn't really impressed with how the AFL-CIO was going. Um, I, we were both co-convinced that the only way the AFL-CIO will truly work is if you kick the fucking cops out. Um, right. Because, you know, the cops have a stranglehold on the rest of the unions that have membership in that union. Um, it's particularly things, folks like teachers, you know, if they don't vote pro cop, their own unions are going to, you know, be in a stranglehold. So it's really interesting to be in the center of a place where there were lots of labor uprisings um, and and digging into those histories and like digging in and going back to the whole tear gas thing. And I've I there's been some reporting on tear the tear gas stuff that goes back like. Um, to how it was used in a lot of labor uprisings. I mean, it was very specifically brought to the United States to quell labor uprisings. That's wild. And immigrant uprisings. Oh, yeah. And the KKK was directly involved in a lot of that. And so the book that I was talking about earlier by Anna Feigenbaum talks about all of that stuff. But then the adjacent books that I was reading about the banishment of blacks and Mexicans from Johnstown, where it talks about the use of those kinds of firearms, um, you know, non-lethal or tear gas, uh, digging further and further into those conversations, it's the same few people who were involved and the development of those. 
And while the original plant was closed in this town, there was a there was the next iteration of that opened in 1994. Um, and they are currently in the development of um, like multi-launchers for rubber bullets and multi-launchers for tear gas. Um, most of their stuff here goes overseas and doesn't go to domestic um, police forces. It went to Hong Kong, it went to Israel, it went to, um, I want to say Ve Venezuela. There was, there was a longstanding list and we had done, I had done some digging and, and spoke with a lot of people who had formerly worked in that plant, learned more about the conditions in that plant. People were earning $9.50 an hour and the place essentially looked like a meth lab. It, it was, you know, we had to go up onto a, essentially trespass and go onto a gas well road to, to look at it from above. It's a series of shipping containers with no ventilation or no like, and these people are handling, you know, the people who are working there for $9.50 an hour um, may have gone up to $10.50 an hour, maybe in the last year, um, are handling really, really toxic chemicals that are giving them burns and are giving them like, you know, the, the, the testing of that stuff is giving people permanent hearing loss. And it, I had brought it up to some local elected officials and someone said to me, wow, it seems to me that a labor party Democrat would want some good manufacturing jobs in this area. That's not very progressive of you to want to shut this place down. I was like, wait, hold up. You're yeah, the one. I mean, I, I mean, I get <laughs> it. It sort of sums up a lot of why I just get, I'm sort of just yeah. so done with debating and yeah. stuff. There's just, because a, a lot of it is just not in good faith in, in any way, oh. shape or form. So oh. what's the fucking point of debating if the person is completely disingenuous? Then yeah. there is no conversation going on. Because, because if someone's completely full of shit, what's the fucking point of engaging? You know? But also but it's also this fear and i think that this is where i am like trying to generate some sort of empathy because it is such close hand-to-hand -hand combat here the fear that these folks have both of their own complicity in these problems that they can't acknowledge like to say like one of the things that i'm acknowledging even in my own my like my own whiteness my own privilege of of my own family having been involved in the manufacture of these things while simultaneously being a part of a labor, a labor community, um, we were still complicit. The women in my family were complicit. And then when I looked at Johnstown also, you know, women who, another great example is women who worked in a bra, you know, like a bra manufacturing plant ended up retooling to make ejection seats for like fighter pilots you know women are constantly in the name of jobs being forced to be complicit in in the denigration of other poor people and the killing and the maiming of other poor people and that's a long-standing tradition here Yeah, and it's kind of twisted because in the end it's like well i you know i needed a job so that's why mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a fighter jet mechanic because i'm just trying to get a house for my family or something that's i mean right. it's so it's kind of this very warped thing that it's obviously not a good thing but it's sort of like if you don't really have, say, politicians or a press that really give you a real history of this country, so you have this rosy picture yeah. of America, and you're like, well, I'm just doing a job, and you're not really thinking about it too far beyond like what is actually happening, and then that's how these systems just keep 
perpetuating itself, you know. But of course, you have to keep everybody on the page of not thinking about it. That's how you, you know, keep creating that dissonance, you know, because it's like if people start to actually see what it is, then they might stop wanting to do it. You know? And that's why I think the art is the tool. And and I, I really didn't think that. And this is where, you know, people talk about political art. I would have loved to have just like made a bunch of weird non-objective art. But realizing that that that, you know, processing this history, my own personal history and my family history and family trauma of, you know, poverty and abuse and those sorts of things that happen in these labor fights. And in, you know, I had family members killed in mining accidents, like explosions Um, and how, you know, big, big labor actually did, did these communities dirty. And we're still, they're still fighting back against the greenhouse gas initiative here. Um, But there is, is the, it's, it's the taking the photographs and the truth telling from the photographs, but then processing it through another layer of painting it and and having it then be processed again so it can be archived and there's that's another part of what I'm looking to do and that's why having like a lot of collaborative assistance has been really important to me because I want women blacks queers and immigrants to have a hand in the history making and and to that history to be told as a measure of resistance and so I want to archive all of these paintings and bits and pieces in the local university library so that in the future, it's not just going to be these chuckleheads who said, yeah, well, we put up yard signs and rainbow flags and that was our resistance. Like I have photographs of these people fucking up, you know, these elected officials fucking up and, and I want to make sure and paintings of them fucking up. And so, you know, the continued investigation in these processes is super important to me. And actually, um, there's a really good, um, there's a Pulitzer um, Foundation funded journalist, uh, Will Sands, who is doing some of the better work on Less Lethal. And you can see his stuff in in Mother Jones and I think Harper's in the past. He was one of the people who was um, shot in the eye by cops in D.C., and, and was blinded. And so he sort of made it his mission to investigate the history of less lethal. And we've, we've been in communication a bit. Um, he hasn't had any published pieces about this community specifically, but also the other place in, but the place in Jamestown PA, which is also Western PA. It's about 45 minutes Northeast of here, uh, Northwest of here. Um, that was just published last week. So it's a part of an ongoing investigation of his and shouting to other people beyond this place has been really important to me in this process because nobody local either wants to listen because they're afraid and they're afraid it'll disrupt their own livelihoods because they're afraid if they speak up, they'll lose their homes or worse, their children will be threatened, which is a which is the children being threatened is a valid, valid thing. Like I, I understand that fear. Um, losing jobs, um, you know, when you are, you know, a university middle-class person is something that I have a marginal amount of empathy for, but if you are an elected official and you've made yourself a public figure, then it is Yeah, your well, job. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. Right. It's, it's sort of like it's people, tough. they just, it's, they're just not, I mean, no what's kind of funny is there was even an interview again, going back to like AOC, but 
talking mm-hmm. about, well, if only you're a one-term congressman, who cares? You know, as you said, like, come out with guns blazing, like, go out right. with a bang. But, of course, what's very funny is, like, that's not exactly what she did anyway. And, of course, she's not. So it's like you kind of get – it's actually the reality is you get folded into the system. Yeah. And that's and what it, happens. You start calling people mama bear or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, I'm, I, it's not, I'm not about being nihilistic. Of course, you have to keep fighting back or whatever. But right. I'm sort of like, you know, you know, actions speak louder than words always, you yeah. know. And I think actions one, speak louder than tweets. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Well, it's like, come sometimes, on. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes. And I think that that's one of the tools. And I think that. Oh, I'm not um, saying like I'm saying, but if you're an elected official, you got to be your your whole point is not we, we can all tweet or, or do right. whatever we need to do to push these things forward. But you're in the office. You can't you know, it's like it's not exactly right. like you your hands legislate. are completely tied. You know what I mean? You you're the elected legislate. official. You know, one of the challenges here, though, is a tourniquet placed on the money, right? The money and the media. So even when I was talking with the elected officials who, who in theory, their heart is in the right place. And I truly do believe that. I believe that they just have not been around the kind of organizing where you demand accountability. And I said, you need to be tweeting about this shit because we don't have a media that's going to report. In fact, we had such a no, no. I mean, I'm not saying like I'm not about electric fizzle. Like I think social well, media, especially when the media doesn't cover it, that you need right, some right. sort of system to counter right. either the bullshit of the media or even what happens a lot. The media just ignores, just well, like, and if they ignore it, and people are only getting their info from corporate media, then they've sort of made things invisible because they're right. just not covering it, like Julian Assange or a number of different issues. You know. Oh well, absolutely, and I think that you know, the history here has been so dark and crazy, like the history of like nuclear, nuclear manufacturing that nobody knew about and weird cancers and the epidemiology of the cancers that have been here as a consequence. And again, the irony of people here being anti-immigrant, but they all have immigrant doctors because no white people want to come and be doctors in rural communities. And, 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 See, and that must be kind of an interesting class it, then. It's wild because there have always been for since the 60s or 70s, since the 70s. Again, I talked about that that Nixon era wave of Middle Eastern, Southeast Asian doctors who have observed generational epidemiologies, cancers, weird things that have happened as a consequence of the the drastic toxicity in the soil and water here um you know through wetlands and things like that and that's even where the the tear gas is the problem the mines are the problem the fracking is a problem and there you know this town actually had a woman who did some massive fighting back um with regard to fracking because even once they outlawed fracking here they took the fracking halliburton was here they left hightailed it to ohio but maintained rights over the well pads and wanted to come back into those injection well pads and put the put the frack brine into the ground on those well pads so they were no longer extracting where the property owners were able to even earn money off of these these well pads they were just gonna literally poison their wells and these are the kinds of fights that thank god because there was a, a a community organizing group called seldev which were 
engaged in a lot of really, really interesting legal tools that I think we did talk about the last time that had to do with the hellbender, the return of the hellbender salamander. Um, and, and being able to say like, well, of course, corporations can declare personhood. Uh, we think that ecosystems can declare personhood, you know? And, and so by that measure, they were able to do some fighting back and there's lawsuits with the EPA right now. And the center of these, there's the big three power plants on the Eastern seaboard. And a lot of interesting stuff came about this year, very specifically, and questions about that came up and a lot of detractors of any sort of, you know, wind, solar, any of those sorts of redundant systems of, of power shifts, like literally grid power shifts, um, have said, they looked at Texas and said, oh, see what happens with wind, like it's not going to work. Meanwhile, we have three of the biggest, coal, filthiest coal burning power plants, literally in the Tri-County area. And we knew in the 60s that these things were only to be temporary. And they were putting out more mercury fly ash particulate and sulfur dioxide into the air than any of them in the country. And we're still fighting that back. And we know there's about 200 jobs at the one most local. I grew up literally at the foot of that power plant in like the cut. Um, where if they would blast through those t cooling towers, if my mother left uh, laundry on the line overnight in the morning, you would take it off the line and it would be black, but they would do it at night because they didn't want anybody to see how fucking filthy it was, you know? And so these are the fights, but by keeping it hidden, you know, I, 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 there's such a, there's such a twin peaks sort of, um, <laughs> It, An it, Appalachian it, Twin Peaks, you know, that would it be is. winning. It's like, no, it's that like would be Park Boys. absolutely it's like, winning TV show for sure. If you took Trailer Park Boys, Parks and Rec and Twin Peaks and put it in a centrifuge, it would be the experience of being here, like without a doubt. Um, because and when I talk about Twin Peaks, it's about that sort of pall of something evil, nuclear age evil. Right. That sort of has over and the secrecy, you know, and, and what what is consuming this place. And it's the melodrama that happens around it and the sort of like the dark fucking weirdness of the interconnectedness of law enforcement, the judicial system, the money from the big, right. you know, the money from the actual. It's a, well, it's a, it's a system. It's a it, I mean, you need a system to keep these things going the media too you need people you need to convince people sell people yep. on it and so the amount of power not have people fight it so you got to squash the people that are going to stop you yeah. in any way you know this place actually supplies the majority of power to the eastern seaboard so the the sort of protective circle around this place with you know, they're, they're running and they're, they're teaching people to disrupt. I mean, you know, this is one of those places where school board lunacy is like running rampant and they're getting people, to, you know, they're smart enough to get these jackasses in and disrupting and, and causing violence within, you know, everything from school boards. And this started shit probably in about 2007 or eight when people started really beginning to they were teaching them when the when the tea party was a thing paying for them to come out to these 
um, workshops that essentially were running on Alinsky and organizing principles, like old fashioned Alinsky and, and even Black Panther organizing principles and saying, disrupt those meetings. I don't give a shit if it's about garbage pickup. Go in and disrupt. Shut it down. If it has to do with taxpayer dollars, shut that shit down. Like if there's money coming in from some other place, make sure that they don't get it. Like that kind of like against their own best interest. And so people who are not able to see the bigger picture feel like they have a voice. So people who are unheard, who are disrupting and who are angry, rightfully angry, feel at least like they have a voice. If they can, they can kick in the door and be loud and cause some sort of disruption. Well, if there's no tax money going into trash pickup or sanitation, it only screws them in the long run. And then sanitation workers lose jobs and it doesn't matter to well, them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think pr the problem is, and I'm not trying to exclude, you know, I mean, uh, excuse anyone who's racist or has fucked up kind of like ethos, right. but it's just like there is a lot of misplaced anger. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of legitimate anger to a system that stomps on people that doesn't have money or whatever, or, or makes them grind, Well, you, you know, know I, like, I mean, you look at, again, minimum wage or even the lack of healthcare or the lack of like, you know, that in the richest country on earth, we have, you know, biggest per capita prison population, homelessness, you know? So there's like many, many reasons to be angry, but then this is the whole role of the media and kind of, you know, this sort of messaging is it sort of warps people so that, they're not actually going to ever attack and try to dismantle the system because they're too busy, you know, again, chasing some QAnon rabbit hole or something that's just right. absolute, complete bullshit so that then they kind of, like, don't become someone that you can really work with. Like, you know, we're not going to build a revolution with people that buy into that bullshit, you know? Well, and the, th the, the thing is, I you know, I have my own very, very strong impression of like how many of those people were actually in dc in january but also you know here's where the democrats are getting put getting themselves put in check is that you know people who are associated with this sort of shit are running write-in votes for things like constable and not understanding how dangerous that is like like constable is one of those jobs and positions where this person has the power to make arrests this civil you know um, this person has the power to look into people's records. This person has the power to carry a gun and make arrests. And if they're part of, of, a, of an extremism, like, and they're not pushing back and at least running some marginal write-in campaign against them and focusing on some other seat, you know, this is also a community that's running a judge who he cross registered on the Republican ticket, which apparently is, a, is common in rural areas in PA, but he sent out flyers that said that he's 100% pro-life. He 100% backs the police. That's the Democrat. And the, I sent them a letter that was pretty special um, <laughs> regarding this particular character, because these are all people, the Democratic Committee here, the local Democratic Committee, were all the ones that stood on the back of, of flatbed trucks to talk about how Black Lives Matter and about how police reform was necessary because we have had police brutality issues in this community. Um, because it's a university community, um, 
you know, targeting black students in town, that sort of thing. Um, and the existing black population. Um, so the, the fact that the Democrats are, you know, well, I mean, it becomes like, uh, yeah, it becomes like, you know, Pelosi and Schumer with, uh, was it the, what is that kind of cloth? The Kente cloth or whatever. Oh, like Kente cloth. That's exactly what kneeling. it is. I mean, it just, it just, <laughs> I mean, it, again, it just becomes like an, an okie doke. It's just a classic con like, okay, we did our photo thing. So, and, uh, you know, and now we're going to go fund the police more while we say we're going to defund them. I mean, it's just, I mean, you can't, again, this is not exactly, how are you going to build with people this disingenuous? You can't. How are you going to win when you ain't right with it? It's just, they're a part, they're, it becomes, like I said, it becomes like a very controlled thing. But uh, we've well, been rapping for a while, actually. We and uh, we haven't even, we haven't even been talking about music yet. I know. Um, but though I know I need to get, that's what held it up last time. Though I should have just put it up anyway. But we should, uh, we should get a mix from you or something. Do you, yeah. So you've been playing around Pittsburgh and stuff, right? Yeah. And actually how that happened was very early on in the pandemic. Um, people, people out here were like getting rid of shit in their basements and this area. And, and you and I have talked about this. Um, Southwestern Pennsylvania had a radio market that was very important uh, from the fifties on through in, into almost the eighties. Um, they were responsible for breaking people like Bo Diddley and um, had one of the first, um, black woman radio DJs in the 1950s and 60s and were one of the first markets to truly play race records. So, yeah, I mean, I've heard like fine wine and some other 45s collectors talking about how Pittsburgh in the 60s, like you'll find certain records yep. that you might only find in New Orleans and Pittsburgh, <laughs> you know, like right. they, they had Mad they, Mike they, Moldy's, the, the whole Mad Mike Moldy and, and Porky Chedwick was the other one that people talked about because he broke a lot of people. He broke Bo Diddley. Um, yeah, and, and it's very true. And so what was happening is people were doing basement cleanouts. There were tons of flea markets where you didn't need much money because people would give you boxes, boxes of like, whatever. Now you might have to like dust them. Some of them might be like good for skeet shooting, but like you could find stuff. And I ended up buying, um, you know, with a stimulus check early on and it ended up paying for itself pretty quickly because people were wanting outdoor events some kid was selling two decks of an amp and some speakers and that's amazing so you guys yeah. now it's like your instant sound system i love it right yeah and so it became this thing where i was using it as a teaching tool to a large extent because there used to be and i started in this sort of like path of local history um there were teen clubs here out the ass it was kind of like in england and actually there are a lot of analogous comparisons that can be made between Northern England towns and a place like this, you know, the, the coal towns or the industrial towns. Right, right, right. Industrial and, town, exactly. Right. And so there were teen clubs where people went bananas for soul music. And as a consequence, this teen club that my mother used to go to called the Red Rooster, I think we talked about that on the last show, um, you know, Johnny Taylor, uh, Temptations, Four Top Spinners, Sly and the Family Stone, all of these folks played, played here and people danced like crazy. And as a consequence, there were also a lot of teen bands 
that became so good that they could backline these bands when they came through town. It wasn't just that they were opening, they were backlining with these guys and they pressed their own records. There was a guy um, who played in a polka band called Eddie and the Slovines who actually had his own polka label that the teenagers, the local teenagers approached about putting out, you know, pressing local teenage records. And there's a lot of them that are like, really worth a lot of money now and i'm one of those people who really fucking rolls my eyes like one of the things that i can't stand (laughs) and you know what i'm gonna say like when people start harping on the price of like a rare record the record record stock market that's what i call it i can't how 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 is that how is barry white's first single doing in the record stock market is it worth 350 (laughs) now is it worth 400 and it's really, really heavy here. Like people get real, really. Nah, into it. I mean the thing is, it's crazy. I mean that's the whole thing is like I appreciate originals and it's fine, and I play some of these forty fives parties. But I also, I, I'm just not a fan of snobbery, especially as the years go on. And I dealt with it. I have been dealing with it for many, many years because it's just it's an aspect of record collecting and digging sure. and DJs and you know who's got this and that and. It really has nothing to do with your personality. In fact, if you're trying to ascribe, you know, the quality of your personality to material things in your own, I would say right. that would be a negative on your personality. Right. Well, but also, like, <laughs> you know, you know Salam, Salam and I have talked about this. Like, Salam and I have talked Mishab, about DJ Mishap. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, DJ Mishap and I have talked about this, about the colonialist aspects of, like, you know, white boy soul collecting. And um and 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 the rarity of records when that becomes like you know the joy of of it sort of sucks the the actual musical joy because again you're now like well i like this record because it's worth a thousand dollars not because it's good you know right and you know like i come at this from someone who you know i was taught to dance by my mom in the kitchen because she loved the stuff right so that was my attachment to it and finding these records in flea markets was just like, oh, this is this is a banger. Like this is really cool. And they're, you know, only to find like whatever. Or some some songs that like, you know, the joy of Lenberry's one, two, three. They're not, they're not Yeah, well not- that's a thing. Exactly. I mean, that's what's kind of funny. Yeah, you mentioned that that track. Is it's like those are the Soul 45s that are just quality Soul 45s. They were huge hits. So right. especially digging back in the day, you find it anywhere from a dollar to five dollars. But it's like, you know, Alvin Cash's twine time because he sold a million. Yeah. But I mean, you hold that up to anything. It's one of the toughest mid 60s soul records ever. So I right. mean, who cares if- rock shows up here so much like it's just it's everywhere. It's right. Like co- and it's, it's really funny to kind of like have that experience of like, you know, and even my partner is who I had been doing a lot of the DJing with because he's, he's just, you know, his, and, and, you know, both of, it's interesting, like since we've been together and since we've been DJing together where the gaps in our musical like tastes or like collections have started to like fill in. Right. You know, I was always a soul person, but I didn't have one, didn't really collect 45s, but because every fucking flea market has them. And if you're willing to get your ass dusty and sit on the floor, there's stuff to be found. Of course. There's always magic in these places for the most part. Yeah. And it's one of the places in the country where that there truly is still that. Now the record stores, you can still find like the, the sort of vintage, the wine, you know, like that sort of stuff. If you if you want to pay for it, you know, and that's why the Brits come in like there's a place the oldest it claims to be the oldest record store in the country in Johnstown. The guy who runs that spot, um, 
you know, when I was going in and, and digging around for stuff and pulling certain things, he's like, yeah, these aren't pulls that anybody really makes. And he said, the only people that I'm used to seeing who pull this kind of shit are, and I was like, what, limeys? And he was like, yeah, because they'll come in and just drop tens of thousands of dollars. Well, I mean, because you can't <laughs> get those records, so... Right. You know, and there's a whole there's a whole ethos. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's not even like it, it's fun to collect and find deep shit. And if you find something that's worth a bunch of money, especially if you get it like whatever, I'm not against it. It's just it's the snobbery that goes with it. But there's nothing wrong with yeah. actually digging and trying to find stuff. I mean, I think that was the original impetus is, you know, the northern soul scene, like just trying to suck up every lost 60s soul record because mm -hmm. they were trying to outdo each other at these 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 dances. So it kind of comes from this sort of like, well, I have this record. There's sort of a long, long tradition of these sort of right. things. And in Jamaica, too, you know, just having exclusive. So there's a, there's always going to be that aspect of DJing where it's like, sure. I got this exclusive, I got right. this shit, you don't have yeah. it, X, Y, Z. But I definitely think it's sometimes, you know, maybe it's just the, uh, you know, you know, more than you know, not so subtle machoism where it becomes like, it gets sort of like corny, like almost jockish, you right. know, like, and, and, like and, I'm a better person than you because I have these records. It's like, I would argue the opposite <laughs> if you think that way, actually. Yeah, you no, know? And, and, and I struggle with that as well. Like I can't, it, my, my eyes literally glaze over. Like if, if I'm sitting with a bunch of people and we're talking about music, when you get around heads, like, you know, I like to talk about where things sit culturally or who was on the track, you know, and that's another thing about Pittsburgh. You know, there's the jazz guys here, like, you know, like the jazz records here are still bananas, you know, um, but also. Yeah, like, I think isn't Spanky Wilson from there? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have like, you know, um, Ahmad Jamal, like all of those guys who are, are from here. um, uh, Billy Strayhorn, like, you know, um, so you have uh, George Benson, you know, you have a lot of these guys who have been on all of these, these records and you kind of like dig around and look for them and they're pretty easy to find for like a book somewhere and they're great records and they're in great condition. And so when people were cleaning out basements, like, you know, my, my love, I love the disco stuff. And then especially if it's jazz influenced disco or jazz influenced funk, there's shit loads of it here because dancing was important here. Right, right. And so that's the other thing. People would just like dump them and Facebook marketplace became this thing where I was making sleaze deals, where I was going to meet people in sheets parking lots <laughs> to get like these boxes of records that people just wanted out of their basement. And then it would enable me to go to other places and trade the records. You know, I'm like, well, I have this, I have this, I have this. It's not that big of a deal, but I can take it and flip yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the beautiful thing is even like finding that that's where the value of records can come in handy is if you especially mm -hmm. you don't you don't particularly have like a pull for that record, but it's worth something. Well, then you can kind of parlay it into things that you do want, right. you know. Right. So that's that's kind of how, you know, going back to that, like me playing records is because there was a need for this community to sort of apolitically and in terms of a social practice art to to recognize that black and white kids used to hang out together and dance here and those were the boomers that's what they did and there hasn't been even when i was a teenager here there were like three different dance clubs and i was able to hear great shit and there was a really good record store here in the community 
And so to find places um, to play. So we, I started using municipal parking lots and we played a couple of gigs on municipal parking lots because it was safe. You know, people could maintain their distance and kind of give people a taste of what they used to do. And that, that is, and playing local records, like finding the local cuts. There's this great flip of um, the guy who ran the record store in Johnstown. Um, there was a local teenage group called the instigation and they did a great flip single. Uh, one side was the letter song by Joe Tex and the other side was um, I don't want to discuss it by little Richard. And they just fucking blow it out of the water. It's nice. these fucking, it's, it's just these fucking teenagers. And you're yeah. like, you know, and it's like they took a bunch of greenies before they played it, but they, they have the voices. There's like some maturity to it and they have horn sections and just like are really able to deliver it. And it's really fun to find some of those locally. Um, and, and that has been a joy as well to say like, I've never heard this before. What is this cover? And I'm like, Oh, this was actually from here. This was a local cut. Um, so that's been a part of what I have been doing. And, and, and actually because of the reopen, um, there's been much more demand for, for DJs. And I think, um, I never officially considered myself a DJ and it was, um, Jeremy from the block, um, who dared me to do it to begin with when I was in New York. And then it just sort of took off while I was here. And then the demand for it has sort of for forced, forced the hand, but it's fun. And, and, you know, coming from, coming from the dancing side, it gave me a little bit of, yeah. I mean, I also think it's know. always good that you have, you know, DJs who enjoy dancing, you know, I mean, you know, you can approach DJing from a lot of different angles, but especially if you're playing dance parties, you know, sometimes you have that kind of like classic, um, you know, oh, DJs are kind of like this music nerd. So they're sort of like steering the party, but they don't necessarily dance. But I do think it's kind of right. good to come and actually come from a dancer's background, because then, you know, when you're DJing what you like to dance to. So there's kind of well, an insight, you know, like you enjoy yeah. dancing as opposed to, I'm not necessarily a dancer, but I'm very good at making other people dance. But I think it's like, it's also a good insight for DJs to actually go out on the floor and be a customer and enjoy dancing. Yeah. And that could give you an insight if you're sitting there DJ, if you're sitting there dancing to another DJ, just to have that insight, even when you're behind the decks, it's like, oh, okay, now I kind of have yeah. an insight of what is going on on the other side over there. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not never going to lay claim to being like, you know, you know, making the smoothest transitions at this point. I mean, you know, I think I, I've, I've improved quite a bit over the last year. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's all good. It's a process. It's a process. A no, yeah. That's fine. But it's also really interesting talking about, you know, and that was another conversation, having, having that conversation with my partner about how you would have someone like Humphreys come into, into a club like Starview, right? And hold up a record and have people clap for it right no transitioning playing the record loft style from beginning right to like end. the mancuso style right and that is and it it was a style that i didn't even understand until i had seen it for the first time i'm like cecily what the fuck is this and she's like oh no 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 that's what they do and these this is a whole community of people who were like no this is how it happens and making me realize that it really doesn't necessarily have to be 
beat juggling or who who cuts up a record like lots of different ways to approach it lots of different ways to approach it yeah like some of those loft parties that that you and i have been to or like you know um when when um large professor would come in and like play the craziest shit and cut them back and forth or whatever um that's its own kind of fun and 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 the sense of humor i think keeping a sense of humor in djing is always like a really yeah no there's definitely people it's like it's it's good to take it seriously to a certain degree in terms of you taking your art seriously but it's also like people that just take it way too seriously when it's a party you know exactly and everybody that it's a party um, people are dancing and having a good time that's where it essentially is i mean there might be like whatever ten thousand people there and lights and you know you're getting paid a lot of money but that's essentially it you're facilitating a good time you know right and and seeing you know knowing that there's a lot of latitude in terms of what you can play back to back or what you can drop into a set for what reason, you know, when, when, when a crowd is ready to hear something silly or ridiculous or, you yeah, know, kind of just knowing <laughs> when to move it around to whatever yeah. mood you're in, whatever makes yeah. sense to you. And that in a sense is also like, even if you're not like J rock or something and beat juggling, it's, right. it's, it's just the, you know, telling a story, the musical arc right. of an evening, like how you are trying to like lead people into wherever you're going, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I've gotten really, you know, because I'm listening to a lot of it while I'm making the art too. So that's like, it's infused into all of yeah, it. Yeah. That's what, that's kind of cool. Yeah. The nice thing about yeah. music is, you know, I slightly AD and D or more than slightly. So it's like, it's, yeah. I like multitasking, even though it's not always yeah. the best way to get things done. But that's the nice thing about music is you can always listen to music and do other things or have it inspire other things. I mean, even sometimes when I'm just whatever, tweeting or reading political articles, it's just nice. You know, I might have some jazz or something I'm listening for my radio show while I'm and reading I'm an article. It kind of, you know, whatever. <laughs> And that's the thing. So what are you, what are you, you know, I listen to your list and they're all over the place sometimes, which is, I love it. You know, like, you know, you can go from Elvis to a jazz piece to like whatever savvy house, but like, what are you, who are you listening to now? Like, what are your, what's your like jam right now? I don't know. You know, I, I just kind of like go from, you know, I've, I've been, I still always, I'm kind of trying to dig random jungle stuff. So oh yeah just going kind of online like either in vintage wormholes or trying to like you know the other thing too that i kind of realize is you know you like golden eras in different things the quote-unquote golden eras but i mean you know so it's like certain kinds of like hip-hop or you know jungle or house or you know disco and funk so and and i've always kind of been that way i was like a mod kid so i was always buying even vintage music you know back then so one of the things that I think sometimes is a challenge for me is like I have to keep, you know, reminding myself there is newer stuff out there and I should and go through it, you know, and lots of, you know, endless good stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, like lately, just like I said, downloading like random jungle labels, this label Echo Arcade that also has like a reissue <laughs> series. But, I mean, they just, you know, just like whatever, putting out just stupid record like you find like i'll find records i like and then i'll go sometimes on discogs and go through the label and start looking through everything the label put out and then maybe that will take you know so it's kind of like branches of a tree and you kind of just start digging around you know i've been listening to other people's radio shows so sometimes they'll play stuff like uh you know 
I've been checking out Jacques Renault's show, Let's Play House. So he's oh, yeah, 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 so yeah. he's playing like lots of house and disco stuff. That then I'm like, oh, okay, here's like a maybe someone who's a producer that I wasn't hip to, and then find a label they're on. So then you kind of start digging because it's sort of like if you're not necessarily always going into a record store. Like I'm not trying to like buy every new dance thing on vinyl. I mean, vinyl is just mad expensive. It's crazy. Yeah, of course. So well, you know, and I want lots and lots of stuff. So it's kind of like you just kind of go through like you know different labels, different things, and you talk about jungle. One of the flea markets that I was at had like crates across the floor. Pittsburgh used to be well. Uh, Pittsburgh, no, Pittsburgh had like total jungle. <laughs> no, Pittsburgh it was a very like, jungle friendly town because I. Diesel Boy and yeah. Josh Wayne cuts like out the ass. Like all these, jo- like actually, all these Diesel Boy, like, well, Diesel, Damien used to live right across the fucking hall from me, like many, many years ago. Um, when, when they were throwing parties like Tunnel Vision and some of the big ones in Pittsburgh. But I found all these old crates and it made me like really nostalgic. It wasn't always my thing all the time. But well, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes the production on like it it got a little bit linear at times. I mean, but uh, there's still, you know, it's just like any music genre. You have to kind of cut through the stuff to find the stuff you like, you know. But there were still good tracks there and they were like a dollar a piece you know like it was- i gotta come start digging in pittsburgh i come i gotta <laughs> come was, visit you this wasn't even in pittsburgh. Was, this wasn't even in pittsburgh it was in like like this time it was in blairsville See, and- so I, I know we gotta go on a little i'm gonna come visit you we're gonna go on a little digging tour I yeah think, i think that's so- an idea I had my ass on the floor. I saw they were like, oh, D&B and, and Jungle singles. And it was like in this box that was labeled. There were three boxes on the floor. And I was like, you know what? I haven't dug any of that stuff in a while. I'm going to take a chance. I couldn't really listen to them. And a lot of them aren't online to hear. So I just snatched up a bunch of them. And I'm like, worse comes to worse. If I pay five, ten bucks for these, I can take them somewhere, either flip them or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's something that's in there and some of them were like really good tracks and then you know right next to it there was a whole collection of someone's storage unit that they cleaned out of and it was clear and it's always interesting when you do this when you're able when you look they were all marked by this person's name who it was clear that they were a dj because it was like all these roy Ayers tracks jimmy bow like all this like really really good shit and I got, I was like, I made the guy at the flea market an offer like 10 bucks for like 30 albums. <laughs> he was like, yeah, take them. And I was like, this is I'm fucking de- awesome. I'm definitely, definitely got to go digging with you. <laughs> See, there's benefits of getting out of New York. That's ridiculous. Yeah, no, See, that's not so bad. No. And so, you know, I, I can refresh my collection in the, in the flea market. I mean, that's not to say that I don't go to record stores. And that's not to say that there weren't points when there there was like a song that I definitely wanted and ordered off of Discogs, but I could mail someone something else that would, you know, discount a price or whatever. Or there was a guy on Discogs that actually was a DJ who used to go back and forth between Pittsburgh and he DJed a lot of European parties apparently and was unloading a lot of his collection. That was a lot of really, really fun, like, Balearic Italian Italo like high energy, which I love the high energy shit. You know, yeah. See, that's when the Italo, d- you know, starts to drift for me. Like post eighty five, yeah. I, I I don't know the high energy stuff was like. But I mean, you know, I went to a really crazy party in Mexico that they played a lot of high. <laughs> no, for reals, it was like a really established party. It's called Patrick yeah. Miller or whatever. Okay, and uh, they play like like late 
80s, early 90s high energy Italo, and it's like a huge party that has been going on in Mexico for many years. Wild. Yeah, it was pretty funny, but like, uh, but by yeah, I like kind of the more early 80s Italo, but there is people who like that stuff. The high energy stuff. I love it, and and Jeremiah and I talk about it because that stuff fed into New York freestyle. Right. No, it does kind of sound like freestyle a little bit. Well, and that was there is a one hundred percent, and I'm waiting for someone to do the fucking consonant documentary on freestyle and what in the conversation between they were having those shows on like the Jersey Shore, you know, for I mean, again, it was like maybe five or ten years ago, but they would have like some of those random freestyle artists from back in the day all playing together, you know, kind of like a big showcase. Because, it, and again, that conversation between New York freestyle and and people like the Pet Shop Boys or people like New Order, like them hearing that that kind of high energy music and it influencing directly, or or people like um, Information Society, right, 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 and Information Society are like this real weird spot because. They're from fucking Minnesota and nobody remembers that they're from Minnesota because they sound European, but they're on Tommy, Tommy Boy. Boy. They're on Tommy <laughs> Boy. Yeah, exactly. no, they, and they look like, yeah, and they look like front two, four, two or like DAF or one, you know, they kind of look like some Euro dance project. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that they're like a really interesting example and they're like a really great band. I always keep one of their records because if they're a great transition record between genres, you're like, oh, well, I can throw this in there, some remix because it can go to hip hop, it can go to whatever because it is, it has that tempo. But it is really interesting to me how New York freestyle was this thing that, you know, it was very Italian, very Latino, like very focused in New York and Jersey um, and had this direct conversation. And I was watching a lot of interviews with Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe not that long ago and them talking about their first landing when they, when, um, oh shit, what was the name of the, the, the producer who, it, it's escaping me right now. He always like had all these like sort of little incognito kind of groups that he was, he was engaged with and they like they, they were the ones to like produce West End Girls. You know, they came to New York to produce West End Girls. And then they were going to all the like Chris Lowe was obsessed with with the the sort of Latin disco clubs and and that sort of freestyle sound and the stuff that was ramping up into freestyle and high energy and them taking it back and having it influence the, the shit that the pet pet shop boys did. And then the, the pet shop boys spitting it back out into freestyle yeah and that's kind of classic that this sort of like music exchange that kind of goes yeah, back and it. forth you know love that it. kind of like develops sounds on both sides in a way right. and that's why i always like get really frustrated with anybody who talks about any sort of like actual purism because it's always a dialogue right right in fact a lot of the you know bands that people that purists might look up to are probably not purists themselves you know even if they're like representing a certain genre so yeah yeah, i mean purism seems like i mean i kind of grew up like i said in sort of this mod scott scene so there's definitely i understand the mentality between the aspects of purism but i also think especially with the internet and things kind of expanding it's sort of an out it's like an outdated sort of model like who just eats one kind of ice cream or one kind of you know what i mean it's it it gets a little bit overkill like even if you want to specialize because society does special does reward people who specialize in things so if you want to specialize in a certain subgenre, i totally get that but it's like in terms of your own personal taste of course you, you know you need to be 
Well, you know, and even I've, if you play one kind of music, if, even if you're producing one kind of music, it would probably behoove you to listen to other kinds of stuff so that your music doesn't get too linear, so that you're looking right. at outside sources. And it's, it's you know? and, and it's it's interesting, like, you know, one of the weird subgenres that I've been, like, obsessing over is, like, you know, looking at, at the British and, like, why they have been so good at, like, taking on soul music and dance music for, for as long as they have and, like, chopping it up and remixing it or why they could make funk music so smooth or, like, why they could, you know, they, it had its own texture to it like the jazz funk stuff of the 70s as it moved into the 80s and then that sort of acid jazz is really but it, it also is like indicative of my specific age because that's when I was really sort of coming into consciousness as it's like acid jazz was picking up and that sort of sophisticated kind of thing like level 42 or even Jamiroquai was kind of taking off right you know you have level 42 at the early end and then like as those things happened into the 90s or trip hop and, and you know you have you're Tracy Thorne marrying with Massive Attack and doing these kinds of things. Right. That's super interesting to me is that 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 friction and why it makes it so good. You know, like why? Well, the thing is like that, you know, certain places then they have certain sounds like the South has a sound. The East Coast has a sound, you know, England sure. just, you know, even different parts of England, you know, so it's just. Yeah. different parts of Latin America. So that's what's kind of cool is like how these sounds sort of get incubated in certain spaces. You know. What the hell was the name of that party that you said that was the the Italo party? In, Patrick, in Patrick Miller. Patrick Miller. That's so funny. <laughs> I that's have a t-shirt from it. I had to get one. No, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, that's the thing. Even, like, again, it's not good to kind of flatten these spaces like Appalachia or even, like, yeah, they right. like who, who knew that there's a whole pocket of people that like Italo disco in Mexico. It's not about, like flattening people is to be like you're from here and you do this and you like this i mean that's what i think it's i think it's society and like sort of cornball media they kind of do that so that it's like oh and here they do this it's like kind of making it easy for people but every place is obviously you know a whole mix yeah. of different things like I mean, it, it took me going to Staten Island to realize there's a lot of Sri Lankans in Staten Island because there's all these Sri Lankan, you know, like you just never yeah, like you think yeah. Staten Island is like, oh, OK, it's a bunch of like cops and whatever. And, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some like black people or like you don't even really think about just how diverse in all these places are. Yeah. So it's it is it's cool. I'm glad that you're, uh, you know, you're spending time out there and like kind of like. Again, you want to like have people be aware of even some of the issues and stuff going on in these places because yeah. they do really get ignored so often. So often. Yeah, and, and it's not that I won't, you know, and again, as we sort of re-enter sort of we'll, we'll watch the labor arc and that doesn't mean that I'm not going to take jobs in New York and spend time back in New York or other places for that matter. I mean, I think my goals and objectives are going to, the, the tectonics of that are continuing to shift until we figure out what is even happening. Um, you know, I've gotten some arts grants to keep myself going um, right now is like a particularly weird time because it's a downslope, both in like unemployment and also arts grant giving and sort of what I've accessed in terms of shows. But I've also been offered a couple, couple of scripts and will I go to New York to take some of those? One of them um, I don't necessarily want to dig too much into right now, but you know, I've had those offers to be able to do films and I do miss making movies. I, I, you know, I was very, very sad. It was a grieving process to lose the opportunity to work on the one that I was working 
as the industry shut down, um, you know, and as, as the city shut down, because it was the first time, you know, since I worked on the rundown with Robin Thede, that show was predominantly women and people of color. Uh, working on that show was like, you know, 80% women and people of color, which is unheard of. Uh, this film project um, was almost exclusively department heads that were women, most of them women of color. And um, the director was a, was a Filipino woman. And that feels good to work on. And the story was unique. And I wonder, and that's a whole other interesting conversation about how these labor conversations are going to impact storytelling. Because I believe 100% that IATSE should, everybody should get paid what they deserve to be working 17, 18 hour days. And they shouldn't have to work 17, 18 hour days. But I also believe that the majority of interesting storytelling and people getting access to storytelling, unless you're an Ava DuVernay and unless you're now, you know, like Chloe Zhao had to start on no money, making, making $0 and her crews were making like 75 bucks a day at one point. Like that's the only way to carve your way into storytelling. If that is truly your mission. And I am interested to think about what is going to happen with the diversity of storytelling right now. Um, as coming into we, the film biz, coming out of this sort of like predominantly white male world, yeah, even, even behind the scenes and all that. Right. And, and, and as people are rightfully pushing for fair wages, like rightfully pushing to not have to, you know, make a minimum wage working 12 hour days with no lunch and replace to shit, you know, like legitimately no place to go to the bathroom or, you know, and, and that's like, those are responsibilities that fall on my department, but if it's not funded, we can't provide it. And that's another conversation to, to have and the kinds of things that happen on film sets and to be able to get investors to gamble on new kinds of storytelling that are not white incel storytelling you know you you are going to have you know taika waikiki's you're, so you're going to have other people who are sort of taking off right now or even like you know the stuff that sh like sharpling's involved in and there's like some di diversity in cast and things like that but it's still not the same is like how how do you as a storyteller and a writer and a first-time director who is not backed by a ton of money get your first one out of the gate you know i mean Issa ray was an anomaly in that regard and she did an excellent job with with um you know uh, awkward black girl you know and i remember when that first came out and thought this is fucking genius but do i think that she was paying the, the crew you know a living wage at that point to get her first one through the hoop no she couldn't have you just can't sometimes. And so that that is a thing that I keep thinking about is how these labor discussions are going to influence the storytelling and, and, and people's ability and how artists are going to continue to have their ability to tell their stories if they're not able to gain purchase and bite into some of these better funded organizations or even labor markets. Because if you are a member of IOTSE, you aren't necessarily going to be someone who's aiming to become a director. You're part of a technical rank and file. 
And that's a very different experience um, than even the DGA, which is a guild system. And it's been interesting to sort of watch that conversation and even watch people like David Simon on Twitter saying weird shit about how he felt that sort of the labor discussions in the film industry should go. Um, and he felt that they should go in more isolated by department, you know, like the writers guild did. Um, but he's already so detached from so much of that, that he doesn't, he's not even aware of what the fuck is going on. Right. Well, I mean, I don't think he's, he's really struggling at this point. Nope. Know? Nope. So, um, so yeah, those are, those are all still really interesting things before I've like, you know, have really decided to leap forward and, 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 you know, say what it is that I think I'm going to do. And a lot of it's fear. I mean, like we talked about the fact that people aren't ready. Like a lot of people are, are jumping into things and they're still not over like that trauma of like having had, like I had COVID or like people who have, we've known who have had COVID who that trauma has impacted them or other things that have happened as a consequence. So processing the last two years is something that nobody. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're all like kind of in a, a new field here, where it's like yeah. we it it it's going to take you know even some years past this to even kind of understand. It's it's sort of a right. hopefully once in a lifetime event, and hopefully you don't yeah. have another one. But I mean, it's you know it's like talking to my mom. You know, when this was in the thick of it, who's eighty one? Is she in California? Yeah, she's in California, and it's like yeah. you know they've never lived through i mean you'd have to be 100 years old to basically right. have lived through this so it's kind is your of like brother in texas is he still doing the film thing too yeah he's still um he's in california but uh oh, he does oh. travel around he, he he does some uh film stuff yeah exactly but uh um, yeah. and you're in what neighborhood are you in now i'm, I'm uh in bedsty i'm in oh Dublin. you're in the back end of bedsty that's right okay yeah. i well, wasn't really sure where he'd no, it's all good. Yeah, we should it. probably wrap it up, though, because we've yeah, been wrapping no. for a while. But it was yeah. really, really nice catching up with you, of course. Likewise. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.